So, welcome. Huge welcome to every one of you here, wherever you came from, to gather together into our new temporary Sangha or community here at Temoata. It's so good to be back on this beautiful land and to be back in the capable hands of Paul and Annalena and the whole Temoata service team. As we know, they know so well how to support a retreat like this. And so I'm so happy to be here with all of you and just to take a moment to acknowledge that we made it. It takes an incredible amount of work to get a retreat like this launched and takes a surprising amount of work for each one of us to extricate ourselves from all of the complexities of our daily life. So I almost feel like we need to take a deep breath out. We're here. We made it. Yeah. Just let that sink in. What an amazingly rare and precious opportunity it is to be on any retreat. But speaking for myself now, particularly to be here with Gil, Gil Fransdell from San Francisco. Some of you've never met him. Some of you maybe know his voice, at least. <laughs> and before I introduce him formally, I'll just introduce myself a little, because I think I know most of you, but not yet all of you. So just to get a sense of where I'm coming from, as they say, uh, my name's Jill Shepherd, and might not sound like it, but I am actually a New Zealand citizen. <laughs> I've lived here for most of my life. I'm based in Tamaki Makoro, Auckland. And I've spent quite a long time working in different centers in Australia and in the US, which is where I managed to come into contact with Gil. I was on staff at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts for quite a while. And then I did a four-year teacher training. Uh, and my teachers for that were primarily Joseph Goldstein and Gil Fransdell. So I know in New Zealand, sometimes, maybe speaking personally, it can feel like we're a little far away, a little bit of an outpost. And so for me, it's very powerful to have Gil here and to have that connection to a sense of lineage, a sense of tradition, a sense of that living transmission of the teachings that have come from Western teachers, teachers in the U.S., from them, a whole variety of Asian teachers in countries like Myanmar and Thailand and Japan and Cambodia and this living transmission and all the way back through them to India to the time of the Buddha, generation after generation after generation, all the way to us here today. And Gil's part of that transmission. So I'm extremely grateful that he was willing to come here to Aotearoa to be here with us for this retreat. I can't remember exactly when I first asked you. I think it might have been 2015 or 2016. And he said, yeah, maybe when my <laughs> son's finished high school. And I thought that was was his polite way of saying, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but he agreed. He was supposed to come last year. As many of you know, COVID got in the way. It went online. So I was so grateful when you agreed to try again this year. And here we are. It feels like a minor miracle. <laughs> I also want to thank Tamara, Gil's wife, for coming with him and being here together, for also being willing to make the journey out here and to be part of this retreat. So I think I speak for all of us when I say huge thank you and welcome, Gil. And I'd like to give some time for you just to say a few words. Okay. So thank you, Jill, and thank you all for inviting me here, us here, and for welcoming us. I feel like such an honored guest to be here. And um, <clears throat> though the idea that somehow Jill suggested that the Dharma is someplace else, uh, no. <laughs> 
I mean, you, you have Jill here. You don't need to go someplace else for the Dharma. And you have you all here practicing. Look at you all sitting here. It's right here. You don't have to go looking or thinking it's someplace else. It's all quite here. And, and uh, I'm here not to bring you the Dharma, but to discover the Dharma that's here. Let's discover it together and find out what it is. And so I'm delighted to be here, and I'm delighted by this sight, just the windows and the, these big tree ferns and the wind and being on this hillside and knowing the ocean is like that's it, that direction somehow. <laughs> wow, <clears throat> what a great location for the Dharma, for practicing. for. And uh, I have a very deep connection to both mountains and the sea. And so to come to a place, you know, that is so close to, has both, to me is very meaningful and heartwarming to come. I was born in Norway, <clears throat> uh, in a harbor town that was surrounded by seven mountains and the sea, and was born at the base of one of the mountains called Fleyen. And now I live in the San Francisco Bay area, just about two kilometers from the bay, in a a little mountain called Emerald Hills. And we have redwood trees that uh, are ancient. And I think that these uh, giant firms, aren't they they ancient? No? Yes. Yeah. I feel this like this, like through them, this kind of lineage and history and connection and all the things that have happened before us so we could be here. It's, It's really great to feel the companionship of what they offer. And uh, <clears throat> so I come here to explore the Dharma with you, discover the Dharma with you. And um, <clears throat> I speak, I, I think, kind of American English. <laughs> and um, so I might make references that doesn't make sense for you. And some of the expressions you use, I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, but I delight in everything I've seen so far here, the signs especially, <laughs> a little different. And uh, so, so if there's anyway, I apologize ahead of time if I make cultural references that don't quite suit suit you here, and and uh, doesn't I want to like to be here in a way that honors you all and respects you all and the culture, the cultures, all the cultures that exist now on this island and. And um, and so hopefully I can do that while I'm here. So thank you for having me. We thought, I know it's a big group tonight, but we thought at least to hear your voice, to hear everyone's voice in the room. So we wanted to offer you an opportunity just to say your name and where you're from to begin with. So we'd like to roughly go around. Traditionally, we do it clockwise. So if you are okay to be on the spot, that will be great. And then I'll just uh, indicate each person. Thank you. A little bit how to make the most of our time here this Amazing, precious opportunity to be on retreat at Temawata. And there are just a few, you could say, qualities or aspects or conditions of being here that I wanted to highlight briefly now because these are specific uh, conditions of being on retreat that powerfully support us in this process of getting to know ourselves better. And in that getting to know ourselves better, cultivate those inner resources that strengthen transformative wisdom and which in turn strengthens our capacity to meet whatever conditions we find ourselves in with more ease, with more resilience, with more kindness and compassion. So there are six particular qualities for being on retreat that I'd like to highlight now and By coincidence, they all begin with the letter S. So those six are safety, silence, solitude, simplicity, slowing down, and stillness. 
So the first one, safety, in this context, it's really pointing to our shared commitment to non-harming. And traditionally, this is expressed through taking the five ethical training precepts. And we will do that towards the end of this evening. So just as a very brief summary now, the first of these precepts is the formal intention to not kill living beings and then to not take that which is not freely given, to not misuse our sexual energy in ways that cause harm, to not speak falsely, not lie, not speak harshly, and in the context of retreat, to maintain noble silence. And then lastly, to not take intoxicants, which cloud the mind, lead to heedlessness. And so you can get a sense from just that brief overview that having all of us here making that commitment to non-harming, it helps to create an environment of safety. And it's an environment that's co-created by each of us. And in the traditional Buddhist teachings, we talk about taking refuge. But I like to also emphasize that we are making refuge for each other through that commitment to ethical conduct. So refuge is not something just that we take. It's something that we give, that we offer each other. That sense of generosity there. So in the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha describes these five precepts as gifts. He talks about them as being five great gifts that we offer to the world. And he emphasized that it's not a one-way gift, that by giving the gift of non-harming to others, we ourselves receive the gift of fearlessness. So we don't have to fear being punished or blamed or shamed. So we share in that generosity of non-harming. And a second very powerful support that we're creating here together is the commitment to the fourth of those precepts, the commitment to noble silence. Now, as I think most of you know, there are different levels to this silence. And the first, the most obvious one is the commitment to not speaking with each other, not communicating verbally or non-verbally, and as much as possible to avoid using technology, to avoid using our mobile phones. And we do this so that our awareness isn't scattered, isn't distracted by unnecessary mental activity. And this individual and collective commitment to noble silence really helps the whole group to settle and our steadiness of mind to strengthen and to deepen. Now, I know from my own experience just how addictive these devices can be. Even sitting here right now, I can feel this kind of pull (laughs) to this thing right here. Yeah, it has this sort of magnetic attraction. And so much so that you've heard me say many teachers these days actually include devices in the category of intoxicants. (laughs) So refraining in the fifth precept from (laughs) taking intoxicants can include temporarily putting aside the devices because the traditional language that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness, anybody experienced that in relation to their devices? So as many of you know, tomorrow we'll have an opportunity to formally relinquish, temporarily put aside the hold that these things have over us And we'll have a short ceremony at the nine o'clock sitting where you can hand in your devices for safekeeping. And so as most of you know, what we discover when we make that commitment, we stop being quite so distracted by all the communication out there. We start to hear so much more in here. And we start this process by listening literally with our ears and then tuning in to the incredibly powerful environment around us. We start to listen more fully to this land, to the forest, the bush, and all the creatures that we share it with. And as we start to embody this listening and this attunement more and more fully, We start to listen to our own being 
with exquisite sensitivity, really tuning in to what's, as Gil said, is happening here in our hearts, our minds, our bodies. And I think of this as a process of befriending ourselves, meeting ourselves with more kindness, so that when we come out of the silence, we're able to meet others with more kindness too. And in a similar way, this third quality of solitude is a powerful quality that supports that deepening of listening. So solitude is really the invitation to at least temporarily put aside our socially conventional ways of engaging with each other and instead giving each other the space so that we can deepen into that practice of listening more fully being with ourselves, with our own company. And that helps to develop a healthy self-reliance, a healthy self-acceptance, a sense of contentment and completeness. And this is another of the great gifts of being on retreat. The solitude helps us to befriend ourselves first. And when we can offer that deep kindness and compassion to ourselves, we're in a much better position to be able to offer it and to receive it from others too. So this spending time in solitude, it helps to strengthen healthy self-knowledge, self-reliance, completeness. And so we have the solitude of our own company and that itself is a form of simplicity. And this is the fifth of these six supports. So we make a commitment to begin to release, to let go some of those habitual strategies that often keep us disconnected from ourselves. So in the simplicity of being here, instead of reaching for the distraction of a device or even a book or even writing, we invite you to put aside reading and writing for a while to put aside any activities that maybe keep us in a little more cognitive mode because many of those activities reinforce that tendency to be doing, 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 doing and filling the simplicity and the spaciousness of the schedule with busyness. So instead of that, we can orient to simplicity and what the Buddha referred to as the bliss of renunciation. The bliss of renunciation. These are, in English, not two words that don't usually go together that well. (laughs) Certainly because the term renunciation in English, again, can sound a little almost punitive. But what's being pointed to here, if we think of renunciation as simplicity, we have a sense of somehow surrendering into just say, the schedule of sitting and walking and not taking in any extra input, we can start to settle into surprising experiences of ease and happiness and freedom. So simplicity, in turn, is supported by slowing down. And this is yet another aspect of being on retreat that's pretty counter to our habitual ways of being out in the world. So out there, the momentum, the tendency is to be rushing, to be doing, to be busy, to be pushing, to be more productive, to get more and more. Here, we're gradually being invited to slow down. So there's a general principle that the slower you go, the more you know. So just like driving a car, if we're driving along at 90 miles an hour, we're going to miss a lot of detail. If we gradually slow down to 30 or even 15, whole new dimensions of experience can start to open up to us. I want to emphasize that this is a gradual process because I think so many of us today kind of metaphorically are coming in at 90 miles an hour. So we're not trying to slam on the brakes and come to zero. 
let the momentum and the holding of the environment just encourage you into that a little more bodily calm and that supports calming of the heart and the mind. A support for that is really, as Gil was mentioning, just taking in this incredible natural environment that we're in. We start to attune to the rhythms of sunrise and sunset, of night and day, of light and dark, warmth and coolness, rain and sun. And we start to trust the natural laws, the natural cycles of the practice developing. And as we slow down and as we come into this, we touch into deeper and deeper experiences of stillness. We can put down the burden of constant doing, 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 and very gradually settle into the stilling. Buddha here, powerful visual example of that stillness. This one has the mudra of teaching, but as I think many of you know, often the Buddha symbols are touching the earth. And in the same way, we can touch into the stillness, the solidity of the earth as a support for that steadying and settling. This one does have the serene smile that comes from that stilling, that sort of quiet enjoyment. So I think that can be a very beautiful visual metaphor. How do we find that quiet enjoyment that comes from this slowing down and stilling? So just an encouragement to make the most of this precious opportunity to be here on retreat. This silence, this slowing and stilling, powerfully support wisdom and compassion. And in turn, those become resources. And when we leave here, they become an offering to a world that so powerfully needs them. So I think that's plenty just to invite us into the retreat. I'll hand it back to Gil now. Thank you. Great. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Can everybody hear me okay? And because if you can't, we can maybe move the chairs around a little bit or where you're sitting so that people need... Because I have a tendency to um, say things quietly and uh, I get lulled into my what I'm talking about or something. So if um, you get, it starts to be a problem with my voice, uh, maybe at some other time we can maybe rearrange and the people who have... Uh, weaker ears like me can come out closer up and uh, move around a little bit. So um, I love this image that uh, Jill talked about of the Buddha teaching and then also the statues of the Buddha touching the earth because in both those, uh, those imagery, the Buddha is in relationship to something. Teaching, he's in relationship to us, teaching us. Touching the earth, he's in relationship to the earth, touching the earth. The Dharma is found in relationships. Mindfulness is discovered in how we relate to what's going on. Dharma is not, not found in a Dharma talk, as much as teachers would like to believe it. The Dharma is found in your relationship to the talk. The Dharma is not, fo not found in the trees, it's found in the relationship with the trees or the relationship the trees have with us, in that relatedness. That's where it's found. The Dharma is not found in your meditation. It's found in how you're relating to meditation, all the different experiences going on. Meaning that you might have a blissed out experience. And if you want to discover the Dharma, you want to look and see, what is my relationship to that bliss? If you're indulging in it or holding on to it or congratulating yourself for being the best meditator on the, you know, in the neighborhood, I don't know if that's the Dharma. If you're struggling 
and you're challenging here with people, with challenging in your meditation, say you're filled with hatred or discouragement or something, the Dharma is found there in how you're relating to it. That's where the Dharma is found. And uh, to continue this idea, uh, uh, I'm really struck by this place. And I think all of us, one of the ways we're going to be relating to this place is walking in it. Whether it's walking along the wood uh, walkways here, or walking on the steps or on the tracks, or you know, just walking to the bathroom. There's a walking in the, in that you we're walking in this amazing location. And so we're in relationship to so much as we do the walking around here. And there's something very special that happens with walking. Every step you take that touches the ground or touches the floor, something in you has to trust giving yourself completely your weight into that foot. And you have to be real, something in you has to really be there. Your relationship is of trust. Your relationship is of being arrived. You really arrive in that moment as you put your weight on your foot and ready to. This arrival here, trusting here, being here, all those things are the ways in which we're relating. At the same time, when you're walking, there's momentum that allows your other foot to lift up the ground and swing forward. And so there is momentum. There's an onward moving mov- mov- movement. And this is, we're in relationship to that movement as well. And so when we do the Dharma practice, we're in this dual relationship. On one hand, we're relating to just really arriving here, trusting here with every step, with every breath, and the more you can do that, the more, even if you don't plan it, you're also involved with momentum that carries you over into the next moment, that carries something with you into the next moment, maybe tr- trusting the next moment, maybe ready to see the next moment, to be wake up to it, it uh, to be in a relationship to it in a useful way. Does that make some sense what I'm saying? Some sense, just enough. <laughs> And um, so this walking around this land here, I've learned today that certain kinds of shoes don't work if it's wet. I guess maybe it's rubber boots that have soft bottoms or something, or I don't know, you probably don't want to wear high heels walking here on the track. There are certain kind of shoes that don't work, and some shoes that make you safer walking here. Maybe ones that have good, strong, kind of vibrant souls that have good grip and all that. So the, you need to be able to differentiate while you're here the kind of shoes you want to wear when the soil is wet and the kind of shoes you want to wear um, and not wear during that time. That's asking, that's a question about your relationship to the soil, to the moisture. How do you want to find that relationship? What's going to support you in that relationship? What's the right way, the healthy way, the safe way? What is the unhealthy or the not safe way? And this is how we find our relationship to the Dharma. We discover the Dharma moment to moment is we discover what is the right shoe? (laughs) What is the right way of meeting the next moment? How are we meeting the next moment? Are we meeting it with greed I'm going to have the best meditation ever. I know that meditation is about bliss, and this is the retreat. I'm going to be blissed out. Or, oh no, how can I get blissed out with a cyclone, cyclone coming? I, you know, I just, uh, this turns out this is the wrong time to be on retreat. And, you know, until so you look at your clock every five minutes, can't go home yet. So, what is the best relationship to have? Not one of greed for better meditation, not hating it because it's, it's you know the, the the wind is interrupting your bliss, but rather, what is the healthy way of relating? One of uh, discovering the Dharma, discovering what is the healthy relationship. Do I meet it with generosity? Do I meet it with equanimity? Do I meet it with compassion? Where do we go with it? How do we meet it? And so 
in the Dharma practice, we're asking, what is the relationship I'm bringing here? Can I discover the healthy way of relating? And can I really arrive in it? Can I really step into that for that moment? And you'll discover as you do this, there are times your relationship to whatever's happening is not really the best for you. It's not really going to inspire you. If we could broadcast on the wall here what you were thinking or feeling, you know, you probably wouldn't be too inspired that everyone saw it. Occasionally, it might happen that way. We, have some, we, we relate in some way to what's happening in a way that's not healthy for us, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. That's okay. Don't have to be, you don't have to now relate to, your, to that with criticism, but rather question, how do I relate to this now? That's the question. Given that I'm filled with hatred or greed or whatever it might be, if that's what's happening, how do I relate to this? Can I relate to it in a nice way? Can I relate to it in a way that is for my betterment, that improves me, that buoys me, that inspires me, that is meaningful for me? Every one of you could ask that question. Don't sink into the opposite. Don't sink into giving up coming to conclusions. Oh, this is the wrong meditation. I shouldn't have gone to that. I ate too many of the cakes for dessert. (laughs) And now my belly is full and heavy and I really blew it and I'm a terrible dessert eater. (laughs) They probably never had it in Watu such a terrible dessert eater as me. That's just a drag, those thoughts. Can you meet it with some other way? And one of the ways that we meet it in this whole insight mindfulness tradition is we meet it with the mindfulness, the attention that cares, that has compassionate care for ourselves. How do I meet this caringly? And just being present for it in a very simple way is a caring thing to do. So there's always this choice. How do I relate? And as we get more and more sensitive to discovering a dharma moment by moment, what you discover is that there's choice all the time, all the time, that you can take. It's okay to take it to some degree. When I finished three years of Zen monastic training, I went to my Zen teacher after I left and said, after that training, I realized that I have so many choices every moment that I didn't know I had before I went. I have a choice how I sit in a chair. I didn't know I had a choice before. I just sat in a chair. But there were all these choices about the posture you take, where you sit in relationship to the chair. And when I said that to him, he shook my hand. He was so happy to hear that I had discovered this. Moment by moment, how do we relate to everything we're doing so that it helps us arrive here and helps us create a momentum to becoming better? So this differentiation between how do we relate? Is it healthy or not healthy? Is it wholesome? Is it not wholesome? Is it, does it have an ouch in it? Ouch, that hurt. Are we sending arrows into our own hearts? Or is it an ah, that's good. Oh, that was nice. It was just an accident, but it's still nice. <laughs> so in this retreat, we're going to have a theme for the talks. And the themes are going to take five basic human categories of ways of relating to our life. And we're going to show that there are two different ways that that relationship can take. On one hand, it can be healthy. And the other side, it can be unhealthy. It's like two paths, a path with forks in the road. And if we can see where the fork is, then maybe we can choose the healthy fork. And, um, and so some of you know about a teaching called the five hindrances. Desire, sensual desire usually, aversion, sloth and torpor, 
restlessness and regret and doubt. That's seven, but it's in five five categories. And uh, these are considered hindrances. Literally, the word, the Pali word means coverings. They cover over our wisdom. They cover over our clarity. And people who do this kind of insight practice are supposed to become experts on the hindrances. You should really, really learn them well. However, there's the opposite of them as well. There's the healthy side of the same phenomena. The same way of being in the world has its positive, healthy side as well. And so just simply to learn to not do the hindrances is okay. But even better is to learn to recognize the positive corollary of each of them. And so in the next five talks, we're going to go through uh, each of the five hindrances together with the corollary that we're making up. Because there's no bliss that says this is the corollary. So it means that you don't have to agree with us. <clears throat> you can make up your own. Discover, oh, no, no, it's not quite what Gil says. I think it's more like this for me. But we're trying to give you the idea that you can investigate and discover on your own what is healthy and what's not healthy. Does that sound Okay. That's the plan. Thank you. So, oh, so now we're going to do the, I think of this as the official beginning of the retreat. And um, uh, the formal beginning, because it's a a bit of a ritual. And uh, ritual is very important in Buddhism. Many cultures have rituals that help us arrive, help us enter into a new space to mark a change. Uh, so that we can really kind of inhabit and step into this change fully. And, uh, and the classically in Buddhism, when you start a retreat like this, usually it's longer, but like a rains retreat for three months, the first thing that you would do is um, honor the devas of the land. You would uh, uh, express your goodwill, your respect, to the devas. Devas is a a Sanskrit word for uh, gods, for deities, or for kind of angelic spirits. Exactly how they translate into English is not so clear. But um, I like to think of the devas as all the invisible forces that that can support us, that's already here before we arrived, that was here because of the land, the people who lived in this land, it was here because of the people who came to Tiamuato before us, who practiced here. All kinds of wonderful things have been practiced here. I bet that a lot of lot of good has happened here in this room here. And so the devas is all that goodness that continues from all this time. And we want to have respect, care, recognition, and offer our goodwill to all the invisible forces that all the conditioning, all the influences that have come to bear at this place, at this time, that are supporting us here, that we call on to support us, and we call upon it, and we, we offer to it our goodwill. We offer to, our, uh, offer to all of it our generosity and our respect. So how we walk on this land, how we relate to the trees, how we relate to each other here, how we relate to the people who live here, all this is part of uh, this beautiful, important kind of mutual field of care and respect and goodwill that we want to call upon to support us here on this retreat. Generally, they would do a chant to say that. I just said it. And um, so, and then what we do is we do what's called the refuges and precepts. And the refugees are kind of establishing the orientation, the protection, the intention for what we're doing here at the retreat. And then the precepts are what really creates the field of safety. And we'll chant both of them. And uh, there's something about saying it out loud in community that does a lot of good. We, when we, it's kind of when we, our voices commingle, our voices come together into one voice, 
we contribute to the community's voice when we do this together. Um, all kinds of things happen physiologically. When we start uh, chanting and speaking together, it's a coming together. But also, uh, when we, um, something inside of our hearts, maybe deeper than what we consciously know, can be touched by this. And I think of it particularly true for the precepts, the five ethical precepts that we'll take, that uh, not, there's a lot of people in this world of ours who do not have safety. There's a lot of people in this world who've been harmed terribly and they carry with them their wounds still from that and their mistrust that they have what happened. And so, you know, I'm assuming it's pretty safe to guess that no, no one here is going to kill someone else this week. No one's going to steal. No one's going to be involved in sexual misconduct because we're celibate for this week. And you're probably not, it inspires me to no end how, how much people on retreat try to be honest. And I don't think there's any alcohol here, is there? Good. So I don't think we're in danger of breaking the precepts so much. Why chant it then? Because something subconsciously, maybe even in you that you don't even know, benefits from hearing the whole community make the commitment to it. Something really important happens in this kind of way. So I'm going to talk a little bit, teeny bit about the rituals, lead you in the ritual chant, and then Jill will talk to you about the precepts and lead you in the reciting the precepts. So um, refuge. I'd like to start with refuge in the Dharma. There's three refuges, refuge in Buddha, refuge in Dharma, refuge in Sangha. And um, Sangha means community of practitioners. So we're each other's Sangha here for now. And um, I'd like to start in the beginning, in the middle, the Dharma. And um, the Dharma begins, or at the essence, is honesty. To take refuge in the Dharma is to take refuge in honesty. Radical honesty. Honesty to yourself. You can debate that you you shouldn't always be honest in public, you know, to everyone and you know, because it hurts people sometimes if you tell them, you know, what you really think about their pants. <laughs> Honestly, you know, so you maybe do <laughs> So, you know, honesty can be a little bit problematic at times out, out in the world. But the person to never lie to is yourself. To really be honest. That's where the Dharma begins. As we can be honest with ourselves then we start seeing what the impact is of how we behave, how we think, how we act, how we speak, um, what motivates us. And to start becoming increasingly sensitive to this inner dynamic of our psychology, our motivation, our feelings and attitudes and beliefs, reveals what is healthy and what is not healthy, what is wholesome, what is not wholesome, what is detrimental and deflates us, what's beneficial and inspires us. If you're honest enough, these these things will begin standing out in highlight. The Dharma is what shows you this. And the Dharma showing you this shows you where to take the next step, where the fork in the road is. And it puts you on a beautiful path of growth and development that unfolds over the days and weeks, months and years. The Dharma is that unfolding, the unfolding that comes, but it begins with honesty. The Dharma, the reason I like to have it first, the Dharma is the bridge between the Buddha and the Sangha. The Buddha and the Sangha, the Buddha was a person, the Sangha is many people. The Dharma is about relationships, our relationships to the Buddha, our relationship to the Sangha, how they relate to us. We wouldn't be here today unless the Buddha had, a, had some kind of a relationship to the people coming into the future. Some relationship to us. He didn't know us, but um, something in him was preparing the ground for this Dharma to be passed down through the generations. And, uh, and so the Buddha 
represents someone who's taken this path of honesty as far as it could possibly go. Until any tendency for unhealthy mental formations, unhealthy, painful ouches in the mind, the heart, the body has been eliminated. It's a phenomenal accomplishment to have a heart and mind that is your best friend because it's not going to harm you. It's there for your best, best wishes and best care. So the Buddha represents this. And not only that it represents the possibility, but then turns it around to be in relationship to the world in this powerful way to us. So for us to take refuge in the Buddha, the classic teaching is, is we're taking refuge in our potential to do the same thing. For our potential to wake up in the way the Buddha woke up. That this is important, it's valuable, it's an orientation by which to organize your life. And it can be um, heartwarming. It can be, you know, the kind of sense, even a sense of heart's devotion to this kind of way of living. It's hard. I think any spiritual life that's worth living is hard. If you're here thinking that, you know, you're here to kind of float on a cloud of bliss and you're not there by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, then you haven't really understood that real spiritual practice is is difficult. The human hearts, the human minds are challenging places to wake up in. It's not a mistake that you are who you are. You're allowed to be who you are in the Dharma. There's no mistakes here. And to show up and do this work of honesty and attention and presence is challenging at times. If it's challenging, you have the Sangha for your support. I've, so many times I've sat in my challenges and the person next to me was sitting still. Wow. And that supported me. I feel I can do it then. Just watching how someone else eats mindfully or walks mindfully. or uh, I, w- I remember I've been inspired in the Dharma on retreat to see someone pick up a piece of trash. Wow. And that, okay, well, I think I can manage this th- another five minutes. So we have a community who are exploring this, discovering this, finding this way together. It's hard for everyone sooner or later. I don't think there's going to be one person here who just plugs into something tomorrow morning and just sails right through and says, well, that was great. (laughs) There was no challenge, but it was so easy. Isn't it supposed to be easy, you know? And And you're a failure if it's hard? It's all about your relationship to what's happening. And if you could explore that and discover for yourself what the healthy way of living is, the healthy relationship, you make the Dharma your own. Where the Dharma lives is in you, in how you're relating to yourself and to this world. And this world needs people who can relate with compassion, with care, with honesty, with generosity. And I hope that this retreat helps make you a person who does the hard work to be able to go into the world with compassion and care, generosity for all beings, including yourself. Thank you. Oh, so we have to chant them now. (laughs) Talking a lot is an occupational hazard for Dharma teachers. And uh, the longer a Dharma teacher has been teaching, the longer they talk. (laughs) So, the refuges, I'll chant them in Pali, the ancient language. I'm not assuming that all of you know it. It's okay. Um, You get full credit by humming along. And and what I'll do is I'll, uh, uh, it's call and response. I'll do some of it, uh, uh, and it's like three times through for each thing that we do. 
And so I will um, do some of it one word at a time. At some point, I might switch and do the whole line by itself or you know, a piece of it at a time. And, uh, and then you repeat after me. And one of the reasons we do call and response at the beginning of a retreat is that there's something about the connection between the teachers and the practitioners that, is, that begins kind of flowing between us in that call and response and acknowledging that there is this kind of reciprocal, mutual relationship that's a little bit different here that we all of us want to be in respect towards and to kind of live within and make that feel that connection. Other times we might all do it together if we do the, do a chant in the evening or something, and that represents how we're all doing the practice together. So we begin with what's called a salutation to the Buddha, paying our respects to the Buddha, and we say it by um, in the ancient language of Pali, uh, homage to the Buddha, the Holy One, the fully enlightened one, um, and uh, perfectly enlightened one. And then we do the refuges, Buddham, Dhammam, Sangam. And the word for a go is the Pali word for walk, gachami. I love it that it's gachami, walk. The, um, because when you walk, you bring your whole self along. Nothing left out. And saranam means uh, refuge. And we'll say it the first time, second time, we add the word second time, which in Pali is tutiyampi. And then third time we say tatiyampi for third time. Okay? So, please. Namo Namo Tasa Bhagavato, Bhagavato, Aharato, Aharato, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Namo, Namo, Tasa, Tasa, Bhagavato. Aharato, Aharato, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Sama, Sambuddhasa, Buddham, Saranang, Gachami, Dhammam, Saranang, Gachami, Gachami, Sangam, Saranang, Gachami, Gachami, Dutiampi, Dutiampi. Then repeat the whole line after me. Buddham, Saranang, Gachami, Buddham, Dutiampi, Dutiampi, Dhammam Saranangachami.
Okay, so the commitments that we share towards non-harming, towards safety, we can express it through taking these five training precepts together. Some of you know them in Pali and in English. So for each one, I'll offer first the Pali. If you know it, you're welcome to join me. Then I'll offer the standard English translation. We'll do that in call and response. And then I'll also offer what's known as the positive expression of each one. So as you know, traditionally, we're invited to refrain from killing living beings, to refrain from taking what's not given and so forth. But for each one, they have, as they refine, they have what's called the positive expression of them. So for example, the refraining from killing living beings becomes the training to practice compassionate action. The training to refrain from taking what's not given becomes the training to practice contentment. So when we come to each of those in English, we'll do it call and response. So the first precept in Pali. Panati pata veramani sikapadam samariyami I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to practice compassionate action. I undertake the training to practice compassionate action. The second precept. Adinadana veramani sikapadam samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking what is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking what is not given. I undertake the training to practice contentment. I undertake the training to practice contentment. The third precept. Kame su michachara veramani sikapadam samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to practice responsibility in all my relationships. I undertake the training to practice responsibility in all my relationships. The fourth precept, Musawara veramani sikapadam samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from false speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from false speech. I undertake the training to practice noble silence during retreat. I undertake the training to practice noble silence during retreat and true kind speech in daily life. And true kind speech in daily life. And then the fifth one has disappeared from my list. So in Pali, it's Sura Maria. Maja Pamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. I undertake the training to care for my body and mind. I undertake the training to care for my body and mind. Thank you so much. May this commitment to non-harming be a powerful support for transformative wisdom and compassion to arise. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.